to your Bible, custom designed to your Bible reading plan and weekly podcast by myself, Chris Case, pastor of Resonate Church. And I'm here with Sarah Pasquale, our executive director. Hey there. So you had multiple things to read this week uh, between Isaiah, 2 Kings and 1 Chronicles, but at least in the New Testament, you only had Ephesians. And so, um, but we're getting into the repetitive story of Hezekiah this week. Uh, Which isn't a terrible repetitive story. No, it was so, so good. They decided stories. to repeat it. I know. You're um, like, oh, I'm reading happy things multiple times in a row. Yeah. And so, but we start off with uh, a couple chapters in Isaiah this past week, and um, we, we continue with this um, judgment upon the nations. And at the last judgment kind of language, it was definitely for all of creation, but, but in, and this one starts the same way, but it definitely hones in for whatever reason, specifically on the Edomites. And I know we'll get prophets like Obadiah that'll focus on the Edomites a lot, but um, there's, there's this idea of deconstruction in some ways, like a chaos, barrenness or decreation, barrenness, wasteland, um, sort of the opposite of the blessing of God in this text. Yeah. I think, you know, I think what I noticed that was really interesting about this is that God's judgment here is more like lifting of his intervention. And so kind of allowing the people to have what they want and seeing the destruction that comes from that. And this is a result of letting the wicked have their way. But we know as Christians through John 3.16 that Christ came to make a way for eternal life for those who rebelled against him. So um, this sort of judgment is not the future for those who are in Christ, but it is a future for people who have chosen a pathway that is not the pathway to life. And then sort of a in a reversal of the decreation, we sort of get this restoration where the ransomed are going to return. And there's a lot of future hope in this text in chapter 35. The The language feels even more grandiose than just the return from Babylon in, in a couple hundred years. Like there is this sort of permanent, a set right nature that's going to be happening. There's great imagery of straight roads, deserts becoming marshlands, like places of life. Um, and it's very es- eschatological. It's very future oriented um, mm-hmm. to like th- what's, what's referred to sometimes as the day, the sort of God's true restoration of this world day. Yeah, I think something too that's kind of neat here is there's a lot of messianic overtones here. So you have this way of holiness and we know that Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. Or this passage in Exodus talks about how the sign that this second Exodus, which is better than the first one, has come is that the blind will see, the deaf will hear, the lame will walk, the mute will speak. And we see all of this in Jesus as well. So much of this is like very much looking forward to Christ. Yep. And so let's jump over to Kings, uh, where we do hear about Hezekiah, who's taken over for Ahaz. And Hezekiah is a good king. Um, that's that's sort of most of the picture we get of him, other than a little bit of an odd story that we'll deal with next week. But um, he takes down all the pagan worship. He even takes down the golden serpent, if you remember back from Numbers, um, because the Israelites had, for whatever reason, started worshiping that too. That's how far things had gotten awry. Um, and it's saying a lot in this text. It says that none were like him before or after in Judah. So so if you wanted to know who the number one king of the Southern Kingdom ever was, and here you go. It's Hezekiah. Yeah, and the author is very clear to point out that Hezekiah's faithfulness to God is what kept them from falling versus Samaria or the Northern Kingdom fell because Hosea did not obey the Lord and lead well. And so the Assyrians attack uh, the north during Hezekiah's kind of earlier part of Hezekiah's reign. And and so the north falls and a bunch of people end up in captivity. Um, and then after about eight years after that, the Assyrians come knocking on the southern kingdom's doors too. And um, Senate uh, Karib kind of tax sort of the fortified cities. Hezekiah holds up at Jerusalem. Um, Hezekiah, it actually works out 
kind of a payment to essentially pay a Senate group to not attack them. Right. Um, they send an envoy and the Assyrians actually just end up doing a ton of trash talking. Um, and it's, 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 it, it, I, I enjoy some of this language here where it's like, you thought you could rely on Egypt, but they didn't, they failed you and you thought you could rely on Yahweh, but Hey, you guys tore down all your places of worship recently. Uh, we'll even give you 2000 pieces of 2000 horses and we'll still beat you. You guys don't stand a chance. And not only that, but they're doing it all in, in the language of the Hebrews so mm-hmm. that, all the people who might be on the fence of like, oh, I, I don't know, I'm a little scared of this group, are all going to hear all this trash talk uh, and and hopefully react. Like it's such a strategic move on the part of the Assyrians to do that. Yeah, and I think too we see a little bit of glimpse into Hezekiah's heart and desire to rule faithfully. So he's just torn down all the altars and is devoted to Yahweh and Yahweh alone. But he starts to kind of waver in his trust for God here. You kind of like at, at the end of this story should really be sitting on the edge of your seats, wondering what's he going to do? Is he going to do what the Assyrians are telling him? Is he going to trust in other powers or is he going to continue to trust in God when he just took this great big step of faith and now it looks like everything is turning against him and maybe it's working against him rather than for him? And and I really like that Hezekiah basically tells the envoy, like, don't say anything in return. And and as soon as they return back, like Hezekiah's first impulse is let, let me go and pray at the temple. And yeah. um, he even sends leaders to go ask Isaiah about what to do. And Isaiah tells him that God says it's going to be okay and God will put a spirit and send a crew and send him back home. And so Hezekiah's first impulse is not to speak, but to seek God. And um, I, I really like that kind of positioning in that order uh, in the in this in in the story compared to other kings in the past. Yeah, it seems like in Hezekiah's moment of truth or his wavering and questioning, it's almost more about how he responds to that questioning rather than what he does. And he responds by leaning into his community. And I think this is what we are to do when we waver in faith as well. Seek out your community, your family in Christ and those who are firm in the Lord. Share your doubt and your struggles and allow others to be part of this encouragement to trust, to encourage you to trust the Lord. Uh, So I think we see that in this, in what happens with Isaiah and Hezekiah, and it's a good lesson for us as well. So they sent a message to Sennacherib again, and once again, he's like, look, God doesn't know what he's talking about. And and he even boasts. He's like, look, I've defeated all these other countries and all their gods. What's what's one more? What's Yahweh? And um, it's probably this that really actually causes Sennacherib to, to fall down. Because at some point, Sennacherib, in their trash talking, he's also like, look, like Yahweh sent us to you guys. Like that... It, it's Yahweh's judgment that we took over the Northern Kingdom. Like Yahweh is doing this, so so at some point they're they're high on themselves, but then they start tearing down Yahweh in the process too, um, and it's just it's not going to work out for them. Yeah, there's a way. There's something about the way Judah is trusting God that Sennacherib is is feels like the harshest, meanest thing he can do is attack their God. Yep. And it makes me kind of step back and wonder, you know, is our trust, or is my trust in God in impossible circumstances? displayed to others in a way that they feel like the root and the core of my foundation is in this God as well. And so Hezekiah goes back to the temple again, uh, prays to God, acknowledges God as creator. He's distinct from all the other gods that Sennacherib has already defeated. And he, he basically pleads with God, like, look, you need to pay back Sennacherib for mocking you, like mocking your name. Like this is about your fame and your name that, that, mm-hmm. that this, this guy's mocking you. Um, and, and it, it, he appeals to God on that 
on that level. Yeah, it kind of reminds me of Moses, the way he prays, like that all the kingdoms of the earth may that know that you, O Lord, are God alone. We see this refrain of prayer, and we see this displayed in the faithful to Yahweh, and that their their lens is not turned inward, but it's turned outward and upward to God, and longing that all nations and people may know him. And then Isaiah speaks in and he compares the situation like this woman who has scorned the advances of a suitor, that that she has chosen Yahweh as her bride over Assyria. And Assyria certainly boasts a whole lot and tears down the reputation of Yahweh. And even though Yahweh is the one who actually directed Sennacherib to this point, but since he's not willing to acknowledge Yahweh, since Sennacherib is not willing to do that, the time has come to end. It's like his usefulness to Yahweh is done. And Yahweh, um, since Sennacherib won't bow the knee to Yahweh, um, he's going to have the same fate as any other group. And mm-hmm. so um, ultimately they try to siege the city. A bunch of Assyrians die in the process of trying to siege the city. And then Sennacherib returns home and is killed by his sons. And yeah. there's a great little piece of history. I'll include a link there. There were stones found in the Assyrian kingdoms uh, of uh, Sennacherib and company talking about this whole situation. So um, there's, a, there's archeological corroboration that's beyond scripture uh, about some of the stuff. So it's great. Yeah. Second Chronicles, let's hear the same story. Yeah. Uh, so Hezekiah has a reign in Judah, which we just covered. Um, and there's definitely some differences in this. There will be a little more attention and focus on the temple mm-hmm. as we go. Right. Remember, Chronicles was written to reunite Israel after the exile and get them to kind of restore the temple. So it makes sense that this author is emphasizing the temple. Yeah. So Hezekiah gra- gathers the priests together, decides to clean up the temple. There, There's a bunch of them are named and put to work and they clean out the pagan stuff and they restore what they can. So there's a, a restoration of the temple project uh, that's happening in Hezekiah's reign that we don't necessarily get a picture of in, uh, uh, in, in Isaiah or in Kings. Yeah. And so, um, yeah, and so they restore worship. They throw this huge old party. They offer mm-hmm. atonement sacrifices, like so many that they even have to bring extra Levites out to do it. They play like David's greatest hits playlist. And, and so they have this celebration uh, for temple worship. And it leads to a celebration, a national celebration of Passover. And like Which the folks so of cool. Northern Kingdom are brought in. Um, even though some of the messengers are ridiculed, some of the Northern Kingdom repent and are reconciled and are worshiping together. So what a good message for this reconciled group that is probably hearing uh, Chronicles told in their time period of, of the restoration of the temple, the restoration of these festivals, the Northern and Southern kingdom coming back together. Yeah. I mean, this is, it's the heart of God to unite his people. And we'll talk about that even in Ephesians, but to see the Northern and, and Southern kingdoms who've been divided for so many generations coming back together to worship Yahweh by celebrating Passover, the thing that kind of got them to the promised land in the first place is really cool. And so let's jump to Ephesians. Uh, so, if you remember from walking through the book of Acts, Paul actually spends a considerable amount of time in the city and um, uh, probably close to about two years. Um, and, uh, and and there's been such, he's had such success in terms of evangelism, in terms of the church spreading that like, if you remember the idolatry of the city was significantly impacted. The silversmiths had, had were losing money and they couldn't make silver idols and there was a riot because of it. And so um, you had all this stuff going on. Paul even met with these elders on his way to 
Jerusalem before he got arrested there. And so um, they cried over him and stuff like that. So Paul Paul definitely had a, a richer relational history with the folks uh, in Ephesus when, when he's writing this letter. So he definitely knows what's going on. Um, he's probably aware of some of their struggles. And so, um, but Ephesus is a unique city. It's wealthy. Mm-hmm. It's a port city. Uh, one of the regional governors was chaired there. Um, and they had the Temple of Artemis, which is one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. Um, it was this huge temple, hugely influential. Um, the, the cult of Artemis was, uh, she's related to fertility. She's related to hunting and other things like that. Um, and so, um, and not only that, but, but the Temple of Artemis almost served as a bank too. And so um, they became very wealthy, almost like Switzerland. There's, there's, it was a safe place to keep your money. And so, um, but there was all sorts of running water, hot and cold baths, toilets that were indoors. There were all sorts of very modern things uh, that defined uh, Ephesus. And so um, it, it, this was a significant city uh, for for church planting, church the church to grow out of. This will be the place that John ends up, uh, and, and as legend goes, as Mary, the mother of Jesus, ends up there too. Um, there's, there's just a lot of Timothys here. So um, there's all sorts of... Um, where Antioch certainly was the burgeoning place of the early church, Ephesus becomes a, a bit of an epicenter as well. Yeah. And I think there's a really nice to follow structure in the book of Ephesians. You know, he's not, he, he starts the first three chapters are really around who are you in Christ and how does this affect your worldview and your identity? And then out of that new identity and worldview, he teaches us how to live, but it starts with the foundation of understanding grace and God's work. And then there's this kind of cosmic theme in here. We talk a lot about eternity past and eternity future, and we look at how all of it's kind of intersecting and interacting a lot within the spiritual realm. So let's uh, look at the greeting. Yeah. And so it's a pretty standard opening from from Paul here of simply saying like he's an apostle. This is his qualifications. Um, he uses terms like grace and peace, which are also pretty standard for him. And so, uh, yeah, it's not a it's not a, a greeting to parse out a ton. Right. So and then he starts with this amazing prayer, which turns out it's in Greek. It's the longest sentence we have in the Bible. It is. And so, um, but I think one thing to notice, particularly here, and I, and I mentioned this back in Romans too, like Paul's use of pronouns, he switches and um, and it's unique. So he starts in the section talking about we and us and, and all this kind of thing. And he actually uses Jewish poetry in this sort of long sentence as well, like the way he structured it. And so it, it, it's almost like Paul's highlighting the story of God that has been telling through all time and continues to tell. Like, and, and he uses terms almost like first to the Jew and then to Gentile because he said things like, we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. And if, gosh, you remember Acts, the first to, the first to um, put their hope in, in Jesus for the first half of the book of Acts is just the Jews until they have a whole council to go, okay, can these Gentiles come in? And, and, and so when Paul says that, and then it says, in him, you also, when you heard the truth, the gospel of your salvation, believed in him. And then suddenly he starts switching into all these yous, like saying, look, all these rich spiritual promises, and, 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 and even the Jewish people were the, the keepers of the oracle. Like, this is our story to tell. But, but here's the good news. You are being brought into the story, Gentiles. Like, that is the greatest news that, that is part of what has happened through Jesus. That, um, that the blood of Jesus ultimately reconciles all Jew and Gentile. Like, this is not a Jewish God. This is not a, um, God that's, that's over in Israel and, and has a temple in Jerusalem, but just the revolutionary teaching of, of how this 
is moving beyond that. And so, um, and that's where Paul's going to go for the first couple chapters uh, as as he starts teaching of this gracious reconciliatory work that that Jesus accomplished. Like this mystery is going to be revealed, uh, and and it's the work of God through Jesus Christ, empowered by His Spirit. And so we even get Trinitarianism in there of like the Father, the Son, and the Spirit throughout this this largely Gentile church hearing of of the reconciling work of the Creator of the universe um, to to through the blood of Jesus, like the worst sins would be dealt with and unite so that so that he um, would would bring all things to himself. There's even this this cosmic all things used in that text um, that that God is is creating a family of restored humans, partnering with him and his kingdom, and it's continuing. And he's broadening his definition of that family now. So yeah, there's just so much. There's so much to parse out. It's kind of hard to like hit on in our podcast because we're doing more like overview um, and hitting a few points here and there. But it does make me feel, I was telling Chris, it makes me want to like slow down and study this for a number of months at a time. I think when we read this section, sometimes we'll get stuck on specific words, especially trigger words like predestination. But And and that's okay to explore. But I think first we should pull back and just like let the truth of how amazing God is wash over us and what that means for us. Um, Paul is blessed because God blessed him and we are blessed. We are chosen by God. Uh, he is redeemer, forgiver, and grace giver. And because of that, we get to be redeemed, forgiven, and lavished on by grace. So I think first and foremost, this passage should make us stand in awe of the goodness and the glory of God. And then once we understand that, we can dive deeper into what this means in specific words. And Paul moves into one of his uh, couple great prayers in this letter. And it's also important to remind as you read it, like, yes, there's personal application, but there's such a corporate nature to this letter of, of instructing the whole church mm-hmm. on how the church is to be the church. It's very, uh, as we use the theological term, a very ecclesiological. It's very uh, oriented towards the church itself. And so Paul says this great prayer that this power that he just spoke of, this power that comes through that message, the, the power that actually raised Jesus from the dead, that they would experience that power now, that that it would bring wisdom, revelation. Like Because of that power, you can now know him in all of his fullness, the, the richness of this inheritance. You would understand the hope that you actually have. It's, it's great. It's a great commendable prayer. Yeah. I, yeah. I would encourage you to spend some time or write it and stick it on your bathroom mirror or something. Pray it over yourself and pray it over others. Yep. Then we get uh, some of the more memorable sections still in this letter of of by grace through faith, something that becomes a central tenet uh, to the Reformation. And and Paul still seems to kind of go back and forth in his pronouns here as if to say, like, look, like you guys, you Gentiles, you were dead in your sin. Like your spiritual state was deadness and and the power of the air, the son of disobedience, some terms that I think tied into to Gentiles idolatry. And, and it's it's used that way. But then Paul, after talking about that, right, here's your state, you Gentile people. But then he sort of goes, and we, we Jews, we're not any better. Like the, the, the verdict on both parties here is that we are all dead in our trespasses. We, we are all, we, we all seek our flesh and our own mind and that verdict's on all of us. But God in his mercy made us alive together in Christ. And I love that Paul, Paul saying like, it's not just that he made us alive. He made us alive together. Like we are now being brought together in, in from death to life. And, and by grace and grace alone, God brought out about the salvation of both Jew and Gentile. And so sometimes we, we take these verses and we still make them so individualistic, but, but Paul's 
application or Paul's like teaching here is like, look, we are brought alive together. Like this is, this is a communal project of God restoring uh, this family. And, and, and because of this, there's, there's works. And because we were dead in our sin, there was works that like we couldn't do. And so we couldn't save ourselves. It had to be a free gift. It's not as if we could say like, look what we have accomplished. That makes no sense. It's a truly free gift. But now that we're no longer dead and we're alive, there's purpose, there's calling, there's a way of living, a way to walk. And I think Paul gets at that at the end of that section. Yeah, the first thing we need to really understand in this is that salvation is a gift and it's not earned in any way, but it is given by God through Christ. And once we get this, we look at verse 10, which talks about how God has work set aside for us. And we see the restoration of human purpose because we are given new life through Christ. So after the fall, we kind of lost that or we gave away our opportunity to um rule and have dominion. Uh, But Paul emphasizes here that we do belong to God and we were created for a purpose to glorify God in all we do. So he has prepared work and tasks for every single one of us. All of us have a ministry task and ministry work to do for his kingdom. Yep. And so um, once again, he reminds the Gentiles, like you guys were outsiders. You didn't even know really maybe the God of the universe or God's covenants, his promises to people like you were out, you were far off, but now you've been grafted in, you've been brought near, you've been part of this family, this household. And by the blood of Jesus, this peace comes. So Paul's always including that gospel message as part of this. It's like, this has nothing to do with what you've accomplished. This has nothing to do with you just picking up your bootsteps. It's the blood of Jesus that brought peace. It's, it's not the temple of Jerusalem. It's Jesus's blood, and and that's brought Jew and Gentile together to be one new man or a new humanity, as some English translations put it, that Paul's kind of hitting once again, like on the church here, that there's a drive towards this oneness in in these texts that these Jew and Gentiles get together. And so, um, and and for him, like they both have access to the spirit of the father, fellow citizens, members of the household. And this is a drive for Paul. It's like this collective whole, this, this new temple that, that the church is going to be where the Holy spirit dwells. And it's built upon the apostles, the prophets, so the, those who have brought the message before. And Jesus is the cornerstone. It's aligned around Jesus. And so it's, it's once again, driving at that oneness, this, this, the wall of hostility, which I think was actually the created Outside the text, this, 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 such a drive, this wedge that had driven between Jews and, and Gentiles, that that God has broke that down to create this unique multicultural family of God. Yeah. So we think back to Hezekiah and the Northern Kingdoms and the Southern Kingdoms celebrating Passover together, and here we see an even stronger, more fuller picture of what unity means, and that Jews and Gentiles, no matter who you are, where you're from, you're coming together, and you are one person and you are one people and one body worshiping one God together. Yeah. It's even hard, like in a letter like this to have headers because like Paul's still developing his thought at some of these paragraph breaks. So, cause Paul goes like, he's sort of like, you look, yeah, I'm in prison right now. But this this is the good news that I brought you guys. Like this this reconciling of Jew and Gentile, this family, this work that God, Jesus is doing to reconcile people to Himself, uh, or to reconcile pe- people to God and re- to each other. Like, and and even though I'm in prison, gosh, I'm I'm so thankful that like that was the message that God gave me to bring to you. Like it's almost like He he feels the prophetic impulse of that that the God of the universe mm-hmm. and, and the God of the universe transcends cultures, people groups, a nation. That the Lord is over all and invites all who are both near the Jews and those who are far off the Gentiles. Like I was telling Sarah before we recorded this, like I think it's lost on us at moments that 
up to this point, you had such deep-seated polytheism where every town had their own patron god, every even guilds, working guilds had their own gods, like everybody had their own sort of territorial people group gods. And 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 even people groups were looked at that way. It's like Yahweh was the god of the Jewish people and stuff like that. And so there was that thought and and for Paul to come along going, "Hold on. It, no. Like that's not the setup of the universe. That's not the what's the real reality of this world and that there's one god who's over all. And not only that, he doesn't play favorites. It's not like the, the folks in Ephesus have greater access than the people in Corinth or that the Jews had greater access than the people, than the Gentiles. But, but he is a God who's now building this new unique family by a gift. And, and he's willing to, to forgive the, the worst of all sinners in order to reconcile and build this new group uh, that's based around Jesus. It's based around his love, which we'll get to next week and stuff like that. Right. And it, and again, yeah. it's essential around this free gift of grace, which is salvation. But here Paul talks about a different grace he has received, and that is the grace to preach to the Gentiles, the unsearchable riches of Christ. And so we also see, we see a grace to be saved, but we also see a grace to be on mission and go and do ministry. Yep. And then we get to Psalm 65, where we'll see we'll see the psalmist say, blessed are the ones, God, you, you choose to come near. And gosh, in light of the Ephesians letter, like, how blessed before the foundations of the world, God chose us in him, not by merit, but by free grace. And so the one who creates the world and everything in it, which the psalmist will get to, the, the that everything sings of his glory, all this kind of stuff. But God, that same God is the one who who provided salvation for us. Yeah, and I think, you know, this is a great psalm for us to pray for the unreached people who don't know or don't have access to the gospel because there's such a big emphasis on people at the ends of the earth. So let's pray that God, who is the hope of the ends of the earth, can be glorified and that those who dwell at the ends of the earth can be in awe of him. And then Proverbs 13, uh, where we get famous verses like, those who spare the rod hate the children and those who love them are careful to discipline them. And if we go back to talking about things like Proverbs at the very, very beginning of this whole podcast, um, we talk about sometimes reading Proverbs as like, okay, maybe we should be careful about the literal interpretation versus the principle that's being taught. Like, if you don't find a way to discipline your child, which may involve a whole array of discipline actions, um, then, then you are going to cause maybe possibly problems for your child if you never teach them discipline. Um, so now does that mean you, you have to spank? Pro- probably not. And so, um, yeah. Yeah. And the rod in general was meant for guiding, not just beating the ship right. as well. Yeah, there were multiple uses yeah. of it. And so, yep. And there's quite a bit more instruction just around what it looks like to live a life of wisdom in Proverbs 13. You listen to the instruction of your elders and you guard your words and you depend on God and not wealth and um, walk with the wise and you become wise. I think it's good advice. Yeah. And yeah, listen to the counsel of wise people around you. Get around wise people when you can. Um, and and don't be afraid of discipline. Like discipline's a, a fine thing. Whoever mm-hmm. eats correction is honored. So um, being willing being willing to be corrected and uh, disciplined and taught um, are, are essential to growing in life. And if you're not willing to be corrected by somebody, yeah, you're a fool. That's what Proverbs would probably say. Next week. Yeah. So in the Old Testament, I would just say continue to pay attention to Hezekiah's life. I think we get a full picture um, that's going to help us feel connected to him and reading it three different times really over the next few weeks is going to be helpful. So what part of Hezekiah's life or struggles connect to you and what can you learn from him? And in the New Testament, I would just pay attention to the interpersonal relationships we see happening in Ephesus here. Uh, Why is Paul emphasizing 
how living as people of Christ impacts our interpersonal relationships in the way that he does. Yeah. And as you read Hezekiah's account, yeah. What do you notice that this time around, like what, and what should you make of Hezekiah's like interactions with the Babylonians? And particularly because we, we hear of that from the, from the folks in the Chronicles. And so um, they are well after the Babylonian captivity and yet, we hear about Hezekiah's sort of interactions with these Babylonians that come and visit. And so what should we think about that story? Uh, and then as we get to the new Testament, yeah, uh, Paul transitions definitely to some, how do you now live kind of conversations for the church? And so, and I think there's some words that Paul really focuses on. Um, notice what words get repeated and what his, maybe even his prayer for uh, the church uh, to focus on is. And so, yeah, that's it for this week. Thanks, Thanks. y'all.